right place. We are the Suicide Prevention Show, and we believe in you, and we believe in helping you thrive in uncertain times. And to help us do that, I want to introduce you to the Suicide Guy. That's not a title most people would claim, but this man is out to change the mental health paradigm. So without further ado, would you please welcome to the studio my friend, Brett Scudder. Hey, Brett, where are you? Uh-oh. Good back. afternoon. Good afternoon, sis. How are you? I am well. See if you can put your camera on. There we go. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing what can happen with technology, isn't it? I am telling you, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. Oh, my goodness. So, Brett, that is a lovely to see you kind of in attitude that I have. Of course, I love your background. Thank right? you. I'm about the water. Yeah, but that's not your normal background. I mean, where do you live? I'm in New York City. And unfortunately, it is a very cold, miserable, snowy. We just had a snowstorm two days ago. It's miserable outside. And, you know, I, I needed to have my background as a, is this is, you're in my zen right now. Okay. So enjoy <laughs> the zen of the, the, the sunset on such a, a day. There we go. This It's a beautiful Zen poster. I absolutely love it. Thank you. We have a big conversation to have because the whole mental health industry has been kind of um, overwhelmed mm -hmm. by what's been happening. And so we're just going to call it what it is. The global pandemic has actually been a boon for certain industries. There's a problem, though. The mental health industry wasn't prepared for it. Right. So, 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 Jackie, let me just say thank you for this opportunity. And, you know, I, I cannot thank you enough for continuing to raise the awareness on this topic that very few people even want to talk about, much less to address on this level. So thank you and kudos to you for a great job in what you're doing. I'm honored to be here. But yes, you're right. And I think what's scary for a lot of people right now is not only is the mental health industry not prepared, but the mental health industry has this structured system that cannot work effectively for people during this time of the pandemic because it has always been functional on a diagnosis or diagnosing people with conditions. And now here we have this exist, existential threat that has come on us in such a way that no one knows where it came from or no one knows how to really address it, but here we are facing it. And it's now the coexisting condition for everyone. And so the mental health impacts from it is not like you can say, okay, I'm gonna diagnose you with COVID. And as a result of diagnosing you with COVID, I can now say that you're anxious, you're depressed or the... no, you know, just from COVID by itself, so many people are feeling a myriad of emotions and those wow. emotions are triggering all kinds of mental problems. You, you have said a mouthful because you're right, the whole system, and I hadn't thought about that way, the whole system is based on let me diagnose you right. with something that's in the DSM, whatever the number is now. Yes. And because of the existential threat, which is a great way to describe what we're what the whole COVID um, the the virus has become, is it's like a threat to humanity. Mm -hmm. And living with that level of anxiety, that level of threat, is not something we were emotionally prepared for. Our 
our emotional resilience level just wasn't up to an existential threat. So, and, and, and that presents a whole myriad of problems, Jackie. I mean, you look at right now. So let me just introduce myself uh, another way. So I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> And, and I'm the suicide guy. Everywhere I go, people say, oh, oh boy, here he comes. Here comes the suicide guy, the suicide man. He's going to talk about suicide. Everything he talks about is suicide. And I'm like, yes, because I don't, I don't see suicide as only people killing themselves or ending your life. I see suicide as a process of how, for example, COVID comes into your life and disrupts everything about your life. And now all of a sudden, you can't go out, you lose a loved one, you're, you're having health complications, you end up in a, so many things that have happened and then you start going down that path of losing your control on your emotions, using your control of self. And now guess what? You start feeling this isolated, overwhelmed, burnt out, fatigued, and then thinking like, you know what? I can't live, I can't continue living like this. I'm just so done, I just wanna just end it. And so, I bring that awareness to the mental health industry and communities in general of really what suicidality is. As someone who lives with this every day, I wake up every morning and I have to ask God, like, why do you want me to be here? I don't want to be here. Man, why do you want me to be here? Why do you still want me to continue going through what I go through? And my only reason to continue going is just this work around suicide. I need to break the mold of what people understand or think about this emotional pain and why people choose ending their life rather than living in the pain and all of the challenges with that. Well, let's president, So I'm the president of the New York Suicide Council. I started that years ago because I realized no one was really focusing on suicide and suicidality. In the health and mental health field, it is just a term. It is a crisis situation only when it comes up but so many people are living with it and not talking about it. Well, all right, so you've hit all of my hot buttons. We have crisis intervention that's mm -hmm. called suicide prevention. Yeah, right. a suicide prevention hotline is a crisis intervention tool. Mm -hmm. It's not designed to prevent because it only gets triggered when somebody's already struggling with suicide ideology, with, with consistent, and my definition, and it might not be clinical, but suicide ideology is when you are aware of a negative echo chamber of thoughts that are leading you in the direction of taking your own life. But, you know, let's take it even one step further than that. It's a simple thing as someone experiencing pain that they cannot control and the pain just controls their life and they're just burnt out, tired, fatigued, exhausted by this pain and not being able to end that pain. And so all they can think about is, if I kill myself, then I will end up ending that pain. And so sometimes when we we put so much thought into it from a clinical perspective or a medical perspective or you know all those perspectives, rather than looking at it as just a human perspective, that at any time in our lives, we can experience some kind of pain that takes us in that rabbit hole. And we're just so overwhelmed by it that we just even subliminally we're thinking in our head oh god i just can't take this pain anymore i wish this pain would end and you start realizing how easy it is for someone to start thinking of dying rather than living with that pain it's a really short walk 
And I think you said something really, really key. What you, when I heard you say that when we, because of, and we're just going to call it what it is, because of the COVID conditions, the conditions we're living under in the world and in our nation, in our little village, in my home, you know, because this has impacted every aspect of life and there's a lot of loss. People have lost their jobs. We've lost the structures of a culture that we thought was always going to be there to support us. We've lost, and our teens, our kids have lost all of the structures of their daily living as their parents are now trying to work from home or their schools are now being done remotely. You know, this huge sense of loss. And in that loss, not having been prepared for loss, we're losing control of our emotions. And then our emotions are running our lives. And I just wanted to highlight that again, because I think it so beautifully expresses the fact that underlies my belief that we are all at risk for suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's no one immune from this. There's no reason to wait to have this conversation with someone you love until you see a sign. But I, I think, Jackie, I think what happens is we, we wait for that crisis to become a crisis even though the person may be crying out for help. And sometimes that help may be subliminal messages, which again, we don't talk about as an industry. We talk about signs and symptoms of suicidality, but there are so many subliminal messages that, you know, I work with a lot of families who've lost children and I'm going to focus a little bit right now on on the children and the youth, if you don't mind. Um, So we've been seeing a significant increase over the last eight years of four to nine year old children with suicide ideations, right? And we've been raising the alarm, raising the alarm, like we need to start doing more intervention and support for children that age because they are also thinking about suicide. And a lot of people have hit back at me and saying, what does a four-year-old know about suicide or even wanting to die or killing themselves? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're not understanding the age that we live in, the, the access to technology, social media, video games and life in general and what a lot of our children are going through. And so we've seen a significant increase in four to nine year old children with suicide ideation and children who have completed suicide at that age. But then you ask the question of where do children or parents with children having those type of challenges go for services? And there aren't many or any. And the only thing is if it happens, you have to call 911. And then you go through that same system of you go into the emergency room, then you go through a psyche valve, then you go into some institutionalization or hospitalization. But at the end of the day, is that really effective? Is that really helping our children or people in general deal with the pain that they're going through that causes their suicidality? You know, I don't know how that question gets answered in New York. Is this really helping? I know that in Florida, I found a little known study of the three day hold, the 72 hour psych evaluation for someone who's known to be at risk. Mm -hmm. And they took a population, a controlled population, and they evaluated an equal number of people who had never been through that evaluation and people who had been. Mm -hmm. And the suicide death rate of people who had been through the 72-hour evaluation period was four times higher. Yes, it is. And so it begs the question of, does it make a difference? Mm -hmm. Is it useful? 
And and we're not we're not saying that it doesn't work for some or a few, but we're saying that the greater number, right? There was a lawsuit filed here in New York City a couple of years ago against the Department of Education because there were so many children who were expressing emotional distress. And the first thing that happened was they were sent to the emergency room and the emergency room experience was not helpful. Let I'm me just say it would be trauma. It would be traumatizing for a young child. Right. So, the first thing they do is separate them from any support system. Mm -hmm. But not only that, Jackie, but you're also putting them into a traumatizing experience within a healthcare system that should be helping to make them feel better, but actually makes them feel worse being in that system. And so the Department of Ed lost the lawsuit because of the thousands of children who were evaluated, who went through that setting, their reviews said that it, it made their experience worse. And so they had to change the chancellor's regs here in New York to say that if a child is expressing or, or exhibiting or experiencing some kind of emotional distress, it needs to be de-escalated in the school before emergency services are called. So, so when so, you- yeah, What does de-escalated in the school actually mean? It means that they need to have either social worker or mental health or some, some, someone in that environment who can work with that student to make sure that they help to alleviate whatever this distress is or the feeling of despair is before you're gonna call 911. Because when you call 911, 911 is gonna ask what was done to de-escalate this situation? What was done to help this student? What was done to help this child before we come in? Because when we come in, we're just gonna take them to the emergency room. And we know when they get to the emergency room, 95% of them are gonna say, I'm okay. And if they say that they're okay, there's nothing else that can be done. You can't force them. You can't put them through a psyche evaluation. It is just that now they have to be released and then they go home right back into the pain and suffering that they were going through or even worse because it was ex exacerbated by being through that whole experience. Yeah, all of a sudden I'm liking it to what they realized during the Korean War about the emotional distress of soldiers. Mm -hmm. And they used to, when a soldier had a, what they called a psychological incident, they would remove them from the battlefield and send them to a hospital to be treated. Mm -hmm. And they realized during that period of time that that was actually the worst thing they could do. Right. And what they needed to do was to keep them as much in their normal for all the chaos that a battlefield is normal, you know, to keep them as close to their normal environment as possible for them to work through whatever was triggering this condition. So it sounds like they're talking about doing the same thing in the schools. And I hadn't realized that those rules had been changed. That is amazing progress. Yes, it is. But I mean, let's, let's even look at this in the context of our young people. A lot of our young people know what the response will be if and when they talk about feelings of despair or depression or, or anxiety or thinking about killing themselves or wanting to die. They already know what is going to happen. And so they would rather not say it or tell anyone rather than go through that whole process. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face in the mental health industry across the board is that we are treating people that we truly don't know how they're feeling because they're not honest in how they're telling us how they're feeling. Because if they do truly tell us how they're feeling, then it's going to require 
something serious to be done about that to take the liability of the system. Because remember, now we have to think about the legal aspect of that. Can you have someone come into your environment to say that I truly feel like I want to kill myself, especially our young people, right? Mm -hmm. Can we truly have our young people come in and say, I really want to kill myself and be comfortable enough saying, we're not going to keep you. We're not going to keep you for 72 hours. We're not going to hospitalize you. We're not going to put you on some psychotropic medications and all of that stuff. But really just say, oh, wow, you know, Jackie, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that with me. I'm so thankful you're being honest. Can we talk about that and not press the panic button just because we fear you killing yourself, right? When we are so afraid, and, and I'll be honest, I started a training program focused on prevention and I originally was going to train people as suicide prevention coaches. And I got absolutely stonewalled by an attorney. Mm -hmm. Yes. Who said, if you do that, yes, you will have one person who will bring down the entire nonprofit because all it would take is mm -hmm. someone who had a conversation with a suicide prevention coach who went ahead and took their own life and that family to blame your organization. Yeah. And I went, oh crap. And, yeah. and that's how I ended up going, what's wrong with this system? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's wrong with the system is that it's fear-based. We are running right. on fear within the system that's supposed to be helping us manage our emotions. Right, right. And, and, and you know, Jackie, if you really think about it, I mean, when you say suicide, everybody gets panicked. Everybody fear because we all know what suicide is. It means that someone has ended their life. Mm. And, and so that's the first thing we have to change. But when you have clinical people who are uncomfortable with the word suicide or talking about suicide, then where does that leave us? Because again, those are supposed to be the people who are able to help us through our crisis, through our pain and suffering. What scares me today is with this whole COVID threat, I am seeing more clinical people who are in dire despair, mentally and emotionally, psychologically, as a result of being affected by COVID. And no one knows. There is no safety net for them. There is no outlet for them. There's no support groups for them. They're just being looked at as the clinical people who are supposed to be the ones holding everybody together while they themselves are so broken, so burnt out, so, so hurting and so in need of help. And this is a system that we're relying on and the system that we're supposed to rely on to help us through this crisis. And that presents a whole lot of threats and a whole lot of problems by itself. Well, I won't argue with that because emotional resilience, the ability to bounce, not break was not part of our conversation on a national level and certainly not within the mental health industry. And now, you know, it was bad when the, my mama was an educator, okay? So it was really bad when they started that campaign of Johnny can't read. And then they followed it with the campaign of teachers can't teach. And now what we're seeing is that the mental health clinicians are not able to hold themselves up under the emotional compression of COVID. And yet they're our last defense for helping people survive this. 
but with no support for themselves, Jackie. That's the other thing that, you know, they're holding all this weight, but there, there isn't any support for them. And many of them have been, you know, ostracized and, and re, you know, reassigned because they talk about feeling overwhelmed. We had a suicide here earlier in the beginning of the pandemic by one of the doctors that was working in one of the hospitals and her reason for ending her life was she, she felt overwhelmed by the levels of pain and suffering people were coming in with. And, you know, her suicide triggered this massive conversation around, you know, the state of our healthcare workers. And I'm saying to myself, from day one, that should have been the primary focus to make sure that our healthcare workers are, are okay and in a good state so that they continue because we never know what this threat could have been and to the extent of this threat. And even today, 11 months later, we still are not giving the protection needed to our healthcare workers. So back to what you were saying about you trying to do the suicide health coach thing, it's not a liability issue. It, it, is, it is a legal issue that really is, it's sad that people fear more the, the legalities of trying to save a life rather than the impacts of really saving a life. But it's a society we live in. The the, the same used to be true. People were afraid to stop and help someone who was in an auto accident. And then we passed the Good Samaritan law where mm -hmm. someone was acting in good faith. They could not then be sued. And I'm wondering if anybody has tackled that in the mental health arena, would the Good Samaritan law cover someone who did acted in good faith to prevent a suicide? And I'm gonna just hope that it does and I'm not gonna go poke in that one because the conversation that we're having is so important. I don't want anyone listening to this to take away the idea that they cannot get help from right. a mental health professional, from right. a suicide intervention specialist, from the, from the hotlines. Absolutely, the help is there. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is what is the help that those people need to right. be able to handle what's what's happening and what's coming mm -hmm. i've for years i've been using the elephant uh whose name is tsunami to describe the upcoming the ability of uh the experience pardon me of anxiety you know tsunami that feeling you get when all the water has left the beach and you can't see it but you know it's coming Corporate America started talking about their concerns for 2021 as the coming mental health tsunami that is going to, and they're seeing it already, drain the productivity of American workers because of the conditions that we are now trying to work in and the pressures that we're living under. And if they are talking about the impact in corporate America as being a tsunami, we're out of words to describe what's coming for the mental health community. But I think, and, and you make a great point, Jackie, but I think the bigger part of that is if we can't even manage what we're dealing with now, the PTSD of COVID for the next 10 years, at, at minimum, is going to be so bad that we, we, we have to create out of box thinking 
We have to create non-traditional services and programs. We have to create a whole different model and mindset because just like what's happening in the UK right now, there's a whole new strain of the virus in the UK that is not what was we've been dealing with for the past 10 months, but something that is a new strain that is spreading faster, that is causing a whole new level of chaos. And so people are now starting to think like, oh my God, we were just starting to feel relief that this vaccine is here. Now here we are hearing about a new mutation that may not be under control or all that. So the, the traumatic state that we're living in from COVID and the reality of 320,000 people who have already died is not something we can just switch off just because we have a vaccine or say that this vaccine will work to immunize everyone or to say that you know people with pre-existing health conditions who are terrified that their fear is not real and so there is there is there are so many real fears in people right now and an emotional instability in people right now that is not even being addressed because we're still so focused on stopping the, the spread of the virus reducing the death and just really, we're, we're not even taking a breath yet as to really, really how bad this is. I'm, I'm, and I'm always floored because when you look at the number of people who died from suicide in the world a year ago before COVID, that number was double the deaths from COVID. And now we know that that number is being impacted by COVID and going up exponentially and nobody's talking about it, or let's face it, it's not nobody who's talking about it because we talk about it. Right. There are other people who are talking about it, we're not speaking about it in a way yet that helps us prevent it. Mm -hmm. And I do absolutely fear, just like the risk of COVID to a healthcare worker is greater than to the general population, I believe the risk of suicide ideation to a mental health worker is greater than to the general population. And they are our defense for the general population the same way the medical field is. So what would be one thing that would help to provide that safety net for the people in the clinical side of mental health? So let's let's I hear that question and I'm I'm glad you're asking that question, but I think we need to just normalize it across the board, right? Let's just normalize that it's okay to talk about feeling a sense of overwhelmingness or that, you know, I don't want to live, I don't want to continue living through this fear. I mean, this fear is really making me feel like I don't want to be here anymore. This fear is so is it's it's so stifling that I feel like I can't breathe or the loss of my loved one as a result of this disease is something that makes me feel so lonely and isolated. I don't want to continue living anymore. Why should any one of those statements require a panic button or for you to rush me into the emergency room and say, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, or for you to say, wow, that's, that's a very serious statement. We need to institutionalize you. So I think just normalizing it on that humane level would make it so that any one of us, no matter who we are, title, role, rank, age, or whatever, who expresses those type of emotions can be given the type of attention and treated the way that is humane, 
Oh my God, being heard is such a basic human need. And but but not the, just not just the being heard, Jackie. I want you to hear me, but I don't want you to rush to judgment of what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what I meant. Being heard without judgment. Yes. Yes. Being heard yes. without judgment. Being heard without the need to fix, problem solve, strategize, or react. I like the visual of the panic button. Yeah. What laws need to change? for that to happen. Because right now I know in the states that I have lived in that have the law to report, you know, if someone who is under that must report rule doesn't hit the panic button, they could lose their license to practice medicine. So I do a lot of work with healthcare organizations and I do a lot of trainings for clinicians and social workers. Mm -hmm. And when I come into these settings, I come into these settings to teach them about the, the, the working with people who are in pain. So there is a, a very large population of people who say, God, please, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. God, I don't want to die. But there is also an equal population of people who are like, God, I don't want to live. I, I can't live. I don't want to live like this anymore. So how can we recognize the people who are saying, God, I don't want to die and be okay with them saying they don't want to die? but then fear so much of the ones who are saying, oh God, I don't want to live. And, and as there, there's a sickness or a disease with them for saying that without understanding their experiences and what they've gone through. I don't want this to be a law. I don't want this to be legislation that governs us to just be basic human beings, humane traits of empathy, compassion, care. Those basic humane traits are being re- removed or governed by laws then that takes away from us as human beings to connect with each other, right? And, oh, so, and so for me, my work is let us just remember that we are human beings. In all my events, in all my meetings, everything that I do, we start out with a check-in, right? Everybody is given an opportunity to, to introduce themselves. No titles, no rules, no organization. I just need to know, hi, my name is Brett and I'm feeling whatever. And you could feel, you could say, I feel depressed, fatigued, stressed out, anxious, like I don't want to be here. And we just say, okay, we recognize what you're saying. We hear what you're saying. And if you need additional help with those emotions that you're feeling, here are help and resources that can help. And let me tell you how powerful that is. Oh, yeah. We've had people who are C-level executives and directors and executive directors from big entities, big name corporations and Fortune 5, all these. They have never experienced that, Jackie. They have never experienced going into a meeting or an event and not identifying themselves by their titles or roles while they are experiencing a mental health condition in that very same moment, in that meeting, and no one knows it, no one recognizes it, and no one addresses it. You've said a lot because that sense of safety, that someone's not going to hear me and press the panic button, that's one of the things that I'm wondering. Because in your meetings, you are able to create that the ability of someone to be able to create that among lay people, absolutely, we can learn these lessons of empathy and being able to be okay with someone else's emotions. It's a very learnable skill. 
the challenges among the professionals who have someone shares those things, they have to make a judgment call and training them that it's safe for them that as a professional to make the judgment call to allow someone to express what sounds like or is directly suicide ideation without pushing the panic button and the professional not having to fear having repercussions it can be in the system it is being done it is okay. being done jackie i can tell you that it is being done oh, it I'm can glad. be done and i think if we get up if we get away from the fear of the legalities and and that aspect of it and just say look it is more expensive and costly for us to lose someone than to have someone admit that they feel this way and we have to deal with that. So there are a lot of people who have, over the years, who have been to my events and felt the energy of, of that check-in and mm -hmm. took it into their environment, into their organizations, into their policies, into their, into their government programs and said, we want to institutionalize this check-in we want people to know it's okay to express how they're feeling. We want to create in a lot of these entities that it is okay for us to have a group or support groups for our staff, right? You know, suicide prevention is the least funded of anything in the mental health field. Think about that. Honey, I'm a stress management consultant from 30 years ago. And insurance would pay for everything else under the sun except my services. And and listen, today, with the rates of suicide has been over the last 18 years, with a report talking about suicide rates going up, it is still one of the least funded efforts or one of the hardest things to raise money for. Um, because again, you can get more money after you die or after someone dies than to prevent or help in an intervention. You know, and, it, and I think that you're hitting upon something that is the reason why we're kind of stuck in a lot of these conversations. And it's because there is such a stigma still associated with anything that comes under the heading of mental health. And I finally just had to address it in the marketing language around us that people don't talk about it because they don't want someone else to think they're crazy. Mm -hmm. And we know they're not crazy. We know that nobody is. We, we know that we're just dealing with a brain that we don't understand how it works. And we're dealing with a culture that does not allow for free expression of emotion in a healthy way. And also the fact, I'm sorry, Jackie, I'm sorry. I'm not Go ahead. You're and I'm also the fact that gender plays a big role in it too. How males versus females talk about emotions, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this level of emotions and a society that still considers men weak for crying, still considers males weak for expressing emotions, mm -hmm. still shuts down and ostracizes males who are considered too emotional. Mm -hmm. And so males complete suicide at a higher rate and more fatal rate than females. And we're still as a society struggling to figure out why or even to accept why that is happening. But you know, still. Th and that cuts both ways because women are judged weak if they cry in a professional environment, you know, if they express emotion in a, I mean, the, the rules got really kind of mushed up, but you hit upon something that's really key. Men die at a higher rate than women from suicide 
the actual attempt rate has become equal. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a place where we just have to say, this is enough. Let's talk about it. Let's fix whatever is going on that so many people are deciding that dying is better than living. Because the one thing I learned was from my daughter's attempts and from my now immersion in this world is that it's not even so much that they want to die. They just don't know how to live. And, and if they could talk about that with someone, even just to express, I don't know how to live with this pain, that one simple statement would at least give them a chance at being supported through the pain. Well, you know, Jackie, I live a very isolated life, not by choice, but because I realized that when I came out about my suicidality and talk about how comfortable I am and at peace with my suicidality, it makes very, very many people uncomfortable. And so I don't need anyone's validation of my feeling or complicity or, or com complacency or comfortability or all these words that people use to describe me talking about being okay with dying and being comfortable with you have no idea what the pain and the experience of pain is you have no idea like you cannot tell someone who is thinking or talking about suicide oh i understand to hell with that you do not understand you don't understand and you don't know what that pain is and how that person is feeling but we understand the need to empathize and we understand that some people want to be sympathetic and stuff but you need to understand when someone talks about suicide and suicidality, there is, a, there is a, an experience of pain, whether it's over years or over time, or it could be situational or it could be now, there is an experience of pain that just really is on a, on a deep level. That person knows that, hey, this is life versus death. And their choice of embracing death is a reality, not you, not for you to decide whether it makes sense or not, but for you to listen, to learn, and to understand what I'm saying. And so I live a very isolated life by choice. I am very public and open about talking about suicidality and the comfort of it. And I, it, it makes people very uncomfortable. I walk into a, a session that I'm speaking to social workers and clinicians. I say, hey, good morning. My name is Brett Scudder. I'm crazy. I am willing to die and I'm comfortable with dying. And the physiological look on their faces is like, you must be crazy. Is that you did you, you are insane to, to make a statement like that? The biggest challenge in the world was my own resistance to being honest. I mean, I the ability to sit with someone who says they are thinking about taking their own life. I didn't have that with my daughter. She didn't talk about it, she attempted. But I had that experience with someone very close to me. And they said they would rather die than face what they were facing medically. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, what needs to happen first? What do you need to take care of first? And my, I mean, I went into some altered space. This is somebody I care about a great deal. Mm -hmm.
but I've been a stress management consultant for decades at this point. So, you know, my training kicked in and saved my assets that day because I was able to stay completely calm and just to listen and just to say, okay, what does that look like? And, and what are the things that you would want to take care of first? You know, because if you're going to do it, you might as well do it with as few regrets left behind as possible. I mean, I was just, this was where I went to in that moment. This was not a pre-planned conversation. This predates this whole experience for me by almost 13 years now. What happened in that complete acceptance of they're willing to talk about it was that they talked themselves through it. I didn't have to do anything except not panic. I've been with I've been with people in that dark space, Jackie, four or five hours. And all I'm saying is, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my, I'm so sorry. Wow. No, no trying to explain to them. No trying to validate what they're saying. No trying to say that I understand what they're going through. Just, just making a humane connection and humanizing what they're going through. You know how many young people tell me, this is a boy, Mr. Scudder, I wish I could talk to my mom and my dad like I talk to you. I wish I could have that level of comfort that I can just be telling them the way I'm telling you how I'm truly feeling. And it, it hurts me very deeply because I'm like, how can you have a child that is going through that much pain and afraid to tell you? But then I have to flip it on the other side and say to myself, I can understand why a parent would be so fearful to know they have a child going through that pain. And knowing what the alternatives and the options and the possibilities could be and, and the, the path that it can go. So, you know, again, that's why I said this should not be about legislation, right? This should not be about policies. This should just be about us being humane and realizing that we truly don't know what people's experiences are, yeah. how they are managing or not being able to manage those experiences, what their definition of needing help means, and what are the effective and meaningful ways that we can help them to manage what they're going through. It's like I tell my clinicians that you are just a very small part of a big part of this person's life. And I try to tell them that because sometimes many of our clinicians and our mental health practitioners feel like they are the end all and be all of the pain and suffering that people are going through. All right. Oh, yeah. And if I do it wrong, this person could die. And, you know, and, 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 and. So, yeah, I mean, it's a conversation that we have to keep going at. And it's a conversation that more voices of people with lived experiences, this is where we will start making an impact is when the voices of the people who have lived the experience becomes the 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 real focus and really what's being heard that's the only way and only time that we can truly start making effective inroads in creating services that would help people you don't bring somebody with pain to the table and say okay here are these things pick one that helps you no you bring somebody to the table and say, tell me how you're feeling, what you're feeling and what could help you. And I will help to create 
something that will help you or be meaningful in helping you manage this pain, overcoming this pain, or treating and healing this pain. And that's where the mental health industry is stuck because it feels like it has all the answers to what people are going through and the pain that people are feeling until you find that the, there's a high number of people who have left their clinician, their clinician's office or the emergency room or the hospital and completed their suicide. It's the, um, someone in the psychological world told me that the open secret in the psychological world and the mental health world is that they don't have a lot of stuff that actually works over a large audience. And you've hit upon why. This is a customization. This is a create the solution for the individual opportunity that the machine of health in general, but mental health in particular, is not equipped to handle. We stifled creativity when we put in place protocol. And this is why I said legislation and policies are not going to be the answer because- I just want to release the legislation that makes it where people have to report. I yeah. think that that does a lot of damage because it prevents people from speaking up. And I know you shared with me your own experience with that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, indeed. Mm -hmm. Share that if you wouldn't mind, because it was just something that was beyond my belief system. So I went into the, the healthcare setting and um, I went for a PCP appointment and that was to see my primary care doctor I was given the PH9 form to fill out. On the form it asked, have you ever thought about suicide or hurting yourself or felt depressed recently? And I chose yes, um, because I believe in being honest about how I'm feeling. And unfortunately the nurse, she said to me, are you sure you wanna answer these questions the way you answered the questions? And I said, yes, I have to be honest about how I'm feeling. Isn't that what the form is for? The next thing I know, I was being rushed from my PCP appointment in a, in a wheelchair with security guards and, and aides from the PCP appointment to the emergency room of the hospital for a psych evaluation, simply because I put on the form that I felt depressed over the past couple of, you know, short period of time, or I've had so thoughts of harming myself. And it was a very debilitating experience, not just from a human perspective, but from someone who's out here doing this work to change that type of response and change that type of panic experience to now be going through that in 2020 or okay. 2019. I mean, it was, it was very scary. And so again, it comes back down to this whole idea of, you know, are we really training people? and providing the training for them to be able to meet the needs of people who are coming in. And some of these policies within the healthcare settings are making life harder for people. This one especially, just it, this is one of my hot buttons because what you experienced was the problem with giving people hard and fast rules rather than giving them the tools that could actually make a difference. She had you know, the rule that if you check that box, this is what she had to do. I mean, she, they took away her ability to choose how to respond. And, and, that's what, and that's what she said. She said, once you answer these questions, that's why she asked me. She said, I'm asking you because once I put this in the system, then there's going to be 
um, some things that are going to happen. And I, I said, I want to stay true to how I'm feeling. Let's see what happens. Um, I will honor your honesty, your bravery, and your willingness to share that story because there's two sides here, people. There's a lot of anonymous help you can get. Yes. You can start with any anonymous form, whether it's we have you know, anonymous forms and for anxiety and depression and help on our side. There's the intervention hotlines that are around the world. You, know, you can start there if this is a concern, but don't let it stop you. And do be aware that it happens. Um, it's better to know the valley that you're about to walk through. Uh, I, I, I think the other side to that too, Jackie, is stay true to yourself, okay? Stay yeah. true to yourself. Don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. And, and really, again, just because you may be feeling some sort of way does not mean that you allow a system to drag you through. I remember last year I went in, I voluntarily went in for mental health services and when the clinical social worker was doing the intake and he saw my history of suicidality and, and just my history of depression, he said, you know, you're a high risk. And I said, a high risk for what? He said, you're a high risk for self-harm. I, I said, well, listen, if I didn't kill myself, successfully kill myself all this time now, you're trying to tell me that now, then you really don't understand. He said, do you mind if I call my superior in to be a part of this session with us just to get a second opinion? And I said, sure. I, he called the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist came in. He was briefing her in my history and my chart. And then she says to me, how are you feeling? I said, well, you know, I, I just feel like I don't even want to be here. This whole, this, and she said, when you said you don't want to be here, you mean here in this room or here in life? I said, I don't want to be here in life. And she was like, hold on, wait a minute. Okay, so that right there is a serious statement for you. And we're going to have to think about how do we keep you safe and we got to keep. I said, hold on, let me explain something to you. I said, first of all, you're not keeping me here. You're not going to lock me up. You're not going to medicate me. You're not keeping me here. I said, I'm very comfortable with my suicidality. I, it is a safety net for me because just because you hear me say that, you still don't even know why I feel the way that I feel. You don't know what's going on in my life. I was homeless. I was going through a very bad situation. I had, I had 10 different things going on with me at the time. Losing my, my becoming homeless was, was the most, I can't even explain that. So first of all, you can't help me with that, but you're going to treat my condition of being depressed and suicide because I don't have a, a home. You don't even know how I lost my home. You don't know what I went through with that whole crazy. I said, let me tell you, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back here. And they both sat there looking at each other like, hold on, what just happened? Okay. He is suicidal. He has a history of suicide. You could see the physiological processing going on, them trying to figure out what are they going to do with me? What can they do with me? And then I just told him, I said, all right, thank you for your services. And I left. You, you got really lucky. Oh, I know that. Oh, I know that. But the point that I was trying to make and the point that I made to them, because they didn't know who I was. Now, if they had tried to do anything to me, they would have really gotten to know who I was, which would have been, they would have been, they would have really gotten to know who I was. 
but I just played it out as a normal person coming in who could, it could be anyone in our community doing that. And, and um, you know, lucky, yes, but at the same time, I'm glad that it was a teachable moment for them. Yeah, it would, it made them pause on the rules. Yes. On, on, on how they had interpreted the rules. And the panic what's the proper response if I think someone is at risk and why do I think they're at risk in this moment? Yeah, and you make a very valid point. Is the risk in that moment? And the answer is, in my opinion, if someone is sitting in the room with a mental health professional voluntarily in that moment, they're not at risk. By definition, it's not possible for them to be at risk because they, if they were intending the act of suicide in that moment, they wouldn't be there. There you go. There you go. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so we have talked all around this. And I just, I want to share with people your website. Katie's going to drop it in. So if people who are in a place where they are in the mental health community, supporting the mental health community, wanting to be part of this conversation about how do we bring humanity into a, an industry that is overwhelmed, that is facing the biggest boom in their industry since it was invented and it's costing us the very people providing services in the industry. And before that system implodes, Brett, I know that you are there to help bring humanity and sanity into what is a very complicated world. Thank you for everything that you do. I am very proud to know you and I am just amazed at the fact that we can even have this conversation. So mm -hmm. I know that we will stay in the conversation. Yes. And continue to beat the drum that this is a conversation not to be avoided. This is a mm -hmm. conversation to allow. Just allow. Wouldn't that make a difference? Jackie, we, we, we need more than ever to have meaningful and effective services and support. I run a 24-7 crisis lifeline. I'm willing to share the number for anyone listening right now or if anyone knows of anyone right now. It's 917-651-1889. You can call, you can text. You will get to someone who understands this experience on, on levels that you'd be amazed to know the interaction and support that you will get here. Um, you know, Katie posted uh, my website in the chat. Um, Katie, you can also post the business website as well, which is sisfi.org, which has a whole lot more of my work um, there as well. Um, for anyone, as I said, we specialize in suicide, whether it's intervention, prevention, postvention, you know, standing on the bridge with someone, standing in that dark space. I am that suicide guy. Okay. And during, and during this whole social distancing, I tell people there's no social distancing in suicide prevention because if someone is feeling isolated and alone and thinking of dying, they need someone to be with them. And so we step into that dark space. We step into that dark moment. We are that light in that dark space. And so for anyone who is interested in, in getting help, 
just talking or having someone listen to them, you know, reach out to us. We're 24 sevens, 99% of the time, I'm the one who will be answering the phone or communicating with you. Um, you know, Jackie, we had a shortage during the pandemic. And so we're limited now in terms of staff, but we've increased our services, you know, a whole lot more. Um, so just because how, of need. where do you want someone to contact you if they're not in need of services, but they want to help fill your shortage of staff? On our website or they, they're our email, our contact information is on our website. Um, they, can, they can reach out to us too if they want to volunteer or they want to help. You know, we run, um, just to give, do I have a minute just to share a couple of I'm things? I'm going to give you a minute. Keep going. Okay, thank you. Um, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we have what we call our emotional wellness listening sessions. It said, it's called We Are Listening. And it's from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern time. All we offer is a safe place for people to come and just talk about how they're feeling. We're listening. We have, you know, peers, advocates, clinicians, you know, all different types of people who are listening. But we want you to know that someone is listening to what you're saying and how you're feeling. No judgment, no bias, no panic button. If you come on and say, I want to go kill myself, I want to jump off of the bridge, we just want you to know it's okay for you to express that. We are glad that you're expressing that. Help us to understand why you're feeling that way and what can we do to help you to not go to that extreme, all right? On Monday nights and Thursday nights at 8 p.m. and 1 a.m., we have our suicide and depression support groups. All these are virtual because, again, it's during this whole pandemic. So people are joining from all over the world in our events, right? And so we have here in New York City, we have five boroughs around the city and each borough faces its own set of suicidality challenges. And so we have our borough suicide network meetings during the month. So we have a lot of stuff, Jackie. Yeah. If you go to our website, you're going to see we do a lot of stuff around suicide. We are one of the only organizations that takes suicidality on the level that we do. Right? You know, well, you know, I've been hunting for you. No, so. but. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for being willing to come on the show, to take the time out, because I know you've been barely sleeping in these last weeks. So I just appreciate it so very much. And thank you for all that you do. And thank you for the opportunity to share with you and to be with you and to, to make this be something meaningful for all of us. I am truly honored and thank you. And for everyone else, believe it or not, hang on. The ride gets more interesting from here. <laughs>